Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast for History, the Journal of the Historical Association. For episode 11 of our new book series, I'm joined by the fantastic Dr. Paris Spies-Gams, who is a junior fellow at the Harvard Society of Fellows. Paris is a historian specialising in art history with a particular focus on women, gender, and the politics of artistic expression. Paris focuses on the study of women artists and their writings, paintings and other artworks, showing how women navigated socio-political barriers in order to participate in society at many levels. And we are here today to discuss Paris's newly released book, Hot of the Press, A Revolution on Canvas, The Rise of Women Artists in Britain and France, 1760 to 1830. And I have to say as well, it is one of the most gloriously illustrated books that I've ever seen as well, just to recommend. So thank you for joining me today, Paris. Thank you for having me. And to kick us off, so how did you get onto the topic of this book in the first place? What kind of drove you towards it? Yeah, so this book came out of my dissertation. And my PhD program was actually in history, which I entered after studying art history for many years. And so in the history department, I got really interested in the debates around gender and the French Revolution, whether there was any way it was good for women who gained some new rights early on that were later taken away under Napoleon, mainly. And artists really weren't part of this conversation. And when they were, it was this narrative that had been popularized by Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun and her memoirs, which were the first memoirs by a woman artist to be published. In those, she wrote that the revolution had dethroned women, um, artists included, who had achieved a very high status in the Ancien Regime that they never regained. But at the same time, art historians knew that increasing numbers of women had exhibited their art at the Louvre Salon after 1791, when it was open to all artists for the first time. And while this was a conversation in the French art historiography, it really hadn't extended to Britain. So basically, I started counting. I looked at every exhibition catalog from London and Paris from 1760 to 1830 and was pretty shocked with what I found. There were hundreds of women who had consistently, increasingly exhibited their art in the key venues in both London and Paris across the era, London's Royal Academy and Paris's Louvre Salon. There were more than 1,300 women who had exhibited their art in these years. And once it was clear that there was such a numerical heft, it became my project. And from there, I basically tried to recreate this world from as many angles as possible, looking for art or written records related to every woman whose name was listed in any of the exhibition catalogs I saw. I then started tabulating their exhibition activity numerically and based on the names of their exhibited works. And then I started creating a range of graphs and data visualizations to figure out what exactly was going on for myself. And once those told such an important story, they became part of the dissertation and now the book. Thank you for that introduction. And as anyone who looks at the book will say, obviously you have got these fantastic charts and statistics for it in addition to all the luxurious artwork and images that are throughout it and now so this developed from your dissertation what was the kind of motivation to get these stories or these statistics out there in the first place when possible i've always chosen to write about women and One of the things that struck me most or has struck me most in studying this period is that this really strong feeling I have that women in past societies in which they lacked very fundamental rights often aren't given the credit they deserve 
for nevertheless making a great deal of meaning out of the lives they did have. And so I always love to look for women's stories and see what's there. And usually it shows a lot more than the common narratives tell us. Definitely, because I think your book is such a good example of actually how many women artists there are that actually when we look there is the evidence there they're not insignificant and we've got some really interesting figures and I mean speaking of interesting what was um, perhaps one of the most interesting to you one of these figures that you kind of came across whilst you were writing this book who struck out and still stays in your memory of all these artists there were definitely a few surprises along the way one of the main ones was, and I, and I will connect this to a figure, was how the statistics really challenged one of the most common narratives we have about women in the past, which is that they mainly created floral or still life works. And that applies to one of the two women who founded the Royal Academy, um, Mary Moser. She and Angelica Kaufman were famously the two founding female members, and there wasn't another woman member until the early 20th century. And Mary Moser is known as a flower painter. But actually, of her exhibited works, less than half of them were floral pieces. She had classical pieces. She had pieces from contemporary literature. Anne Radcliffe, she had Italian literature as a subject for some of her pieces. And it was this huge range. And it was really shocking to me the way that what she exhibited is not part of the narrative of who she was or what she was capable of as a woman. Because part of the other narrative is that because women weren't allowed into um, formal drawing academies where nude figures were, where um, artists studied from nude figures, they couldn't create narrative works and thus they weren't able to achieve the highest levels of artistic distinction. And none of Moser's narrative works survive. But a nude figure drawing by her does survive. And actually, in both cities, I found that women found numerous ways to study the nude figure across this entire period. And again, they often did so at a very high level and this often led them to exhibit large scale narrative works. And that actually leads to another interesting thing that came across in this research, which was that contrary to what I expected, women's artistic choices actually mirrored those of their male peers in both cities um, more than those of women artists across the channel. And that was consistent across the period. And so what that means is that in London, women mainly exhibited the types of works that men in London exhibited. And those were not the same choices as women in Paris who were exhibiting in types of works that mirrored those of men in Paris. This is really important because people have long thought women mainly made still life works and that they weren't able to produce the same types of works as men. But actually still lifes, once you have the statistics, we can find that they were a statistical minority in both nations. They were 12% of women's exhibited works in London and only about 5% in Paris. And so the data actually shows that women were actively, regularly creating works in the same realms as men and having those choices positively reinforced with their exhibiting presence. Thank you. So that's uh, one kind of figure for our listeners to kind of delve into a little bit. And that point, again, as I was reading through the book and around what women were able to access and paint and study is something we'll move on to a little bit later but to get to the beginning of the book you start the book off in London and talking about the 
kind of relative equity between the sexes in terms of the ability to exhibit their work and how does exhibiting work change with the establishment of the Royal Academy? That's a great question. So artists in London hosted the city's first public exhibition in 1760 and they were hoping to establish a new way of selling works of art. By the time the Royal Academy was founded in 1768, um, men and women had been navigating the public commercial world for nearly a decade. And the Royal Academy, of course, held its first show in 1769. So in these shows in the 1760s, women and men had been exhibiting in a huge variety of materials, from needleworks and hair engravings, um, works made of seaweed even, to large-scale history works. And I want to emphasize again that Needleworks were exhibited by men and women, that all of these kind of craft-like genres we associate with women now, largely because of the literature, were not exclusively or even necessarily predominantly associated with women at the time. But when the Academy established itself, it aimed to distance itself from these other venues, in part by enforcing strict submission criteria, banning these craft-like materials in an effort to um, increase its own status. And so coupled with the fact that the Royal Academy also established schools of art that from which women were excluded, this has led scholars to ascribe the Academy a deeply exclusionary stance on gendered lines. But actually, when the Academy opened and it had these criteria, the restrictions actually helped women establish a mainstream public presence because the works they submitted by requisite had to mirror the type of and quality of works made by men. So whereas women had already been present in the public art show world from the beginning, the Royal Academy opened a completely new venue for professionalization and allowed women to do it to attempt to professionalize at a very high level. And what we see is as the years go on, and particularly as the 1790s unfold, women start exhibiting at the Academy in unprecedented numbers. And it became their main venue for establishing artistic careers and professionalizing much as it was for men. Thank you for that introduction to it because it's obviously very important and how the influence of institutions and the rigor kind of associated with them is kind of like spread throughout your book as an kind of interesting segue into things and I mean and you'll see it's in the title thinking about a revolution on canvas so focusing here on the French Revolution, how does this change the lives of women artists in England and in France? The revolution changed the lives of women artists in both nations dramatically, but in many and often very different ways. And historically, we've generally heard a lot about Elizabeth Vigée-Lebrun and Adelaide Labiguillard in this context, who were two of the most prominent women artists in Paris before the revolution. They both had the royal family as their patrons, garnered incredibly high prices for their works, and had gained the rare, rare, rare privilege of academic acceptance. So they were actually royal academicians in Paris. When the revolution happened, they had to completely reorient their careers. Vigée Lebrun emigrated. She went to Italy, she went to Germany, she went to Russia, and she didn't come back to Paris until after 1800. And La Biguillard, decided to reorient her artistic ties visually by exhibiting portraits of deputies to the National Assembly and kind of this new class of people in Paris who were decidedly not royal. 
But at the same time, the revolution opened huge doors for hundreds of Vigée Lebrun and Levy Guillard's peers who didn't have to reorient these ties and hadn't formerly been public royalists in the same way. And what we see is that from 1791, when the National Assembly declared the Louvre Salon open to all exhibitors, male or female, academician or non-academician, there was a huge rise in the numbers of women exhibiting. In 1791, there's 22 women who immediately exhibit 60 works, which is about seven and a half percent of entries. By 1802, there's 49 women exhibiting 91 works, in fact, totaling 16% of all entries. And we see similar rises in London. By 1802, nearly 60 women are exhibiting 100 works, which is 9% of all pieces on display. And these numbers remained heightened. And I'm emphasizing these statistics, which show women certainly in a minority, but a consistent one, because women's art was recently calculated to total less than 5% of works on the walls of most American and European museums. And so women's exhibiting presence was markedly greater 200 years ago than it is in most public museums and private museums today. In Paris, women were exhibiting revolutionary themes and they were listed as citoyennes in the catalog. And women also used the turmoil of the revolution as a rhetorical justification for pursuing careers in the arts. So for instance, when this one woman wrote a letter to the government requesting work in 1816, so years after the revolution, this painter, her name was Julie Victoire Philippot, and she was a portrait and narrative painter. She wrote that she hoped to receive commissions explicitly because the revolution had stripped her family of its means of existence. In Britain, we also see these economic motivations around what a lot of British women perceived as the losses of fortune that the revolution brought upon men and women in France. In my book, this is directly articulated by a woman named Ellen Sharples, who was married to the artist James Sharples, then decided to become an artist in her own right, and then trained her, her daughter, Rolinda, to also become an exhibiting artist. And Ellen wrote that having witnessed the fluctuation of fortunes and funds and all, all of these horrible things with the French Revolution, she had decided to make drawing available to what she called a, quote, useful purpose. And she and her daughter both used the word professionalization or professional in terms of how they saw their art. And when her daughter decided to become an artist, she felt relieved, she wrote, because she knew that her daughter would have something to fall back on. And so in short, the French Revolution affected women's lives beyond the arts in both nations in countless ways. But in the arts, there's, we see a real direct influence on their ability to exhibit, their reasons for exhibiting, and their repeated use of art for economic gain for themselves and their families. I mean, that's a shocking statistic in terms of we have less female exhibited work now than 200 years ago and I mean that's like you say it is a consistent minority but thinking about the scale if a hundred works is only nine percent the sheer scale of what's exhibited and you know how much room how much growth there could be for allowing more female artists to have their work presented but I mean your last point about the sharp as you know they're interesting figures in themselves but kind of makes you think about how important is 
family background or cultural background to the success of women's artists. Yes, exactly. And it's hard to say exactly because we don't know the backgrounds for many of these women as much as I have tried. I hope the book, among other things, inspires a lot more research into so many of these figures. But of those for whom we do know their background, which is several hundred of them, we often know that their families were quite supportive and at times even depended on them for their work. Because even though I emphasize all of these things women managed to do or wanted to do or did amid the restrictions they faced without a supportive family or a supportive husband in some situations, they also weren't able to professionalize in the same way as many others. And so in terms of the family background, we see in both nations that parents were very encouraging of their daughters to practice art to, as a means of subsistence um, on which they could depend. And so one of the two, two of David's earliest students were the sisters, the Levi Leroux sisters, and their father actually wrote in a letter to the government defending their study of David, saying that the family had recently had some misfortunes and he hoped that their studying with David would actually give them um, a talent that would quote, compensate them well. At the same time, there's this long held model that most women who became artists had to be the daughters or wives of artists. And we don't see that consistently in France. It's, I think about less than 20% of the women for whom, for whom um, background data survives. In Britain, we do. There's, we see a very supportive family model that emerges with numerous sisters and cousins exhibiting alongside their fathers, brothers, and more. And what's interesting about this family model is, A, as I discussed earlier, this actually parallels how many male artists came into the public art world, which was recently detailed by Martin Myron. But it's also more commercial and professionally focused than this idea of coming from an artistic family has traditionally allowed for women. And so there's the Flaxman family. We know John Flaxman, the sculptor, and numerous letters survive between him and his wife and both of their sisters in which they're incredibly encouraging of their sister's artistic ambitions. And his sister, Marianne Flaxman, exhibited at the Academy for decades in a huge range of genres, also did illustrations for some of Blake's works, was very present in the art world. At the same time, as I alluded, families could impose limits given the gender politics of the time. And I think this is important to acknowledge in part because it makes the women who succeeded all the more remarkable. And so I talk a lot in the book about this woman named Mary Smirk who wants to be an artist for a young age. And Joseph Farrington takes her under his wing. He's incredibly supportive. He lends her drawings to copy as he does other artists women and men, he tries to get her commissions and she becomes an exhibiting painter. However, there's one year where her work isn't hung in the great room and her father, who's an academician, doesn't like that. He wants it to either be in the best room or no room at all. And so he demands it be removed. And it shows a way in which women, even who had found a way to kind of overcome several boundaries and be part of this world and even make money from their art were still still had to succumb to the wills of men in their families to whom they were legally bound. We also see that in France with this woman, Marie Benoit, who was a student of David, incredibly successful, ended up being part of what some scholars have called the pictorial propaganda machine for Napoleon. And 
did several official portraits of him and his family members and was making thousands and thousands of livre a year. But when her husband got a very prestigious position in the restoration government after Napoleon's fall, he and others decided that this position wasn't compatible with having a wife who exhibited in the public art world. And so she had to give up her career. And a letter survives from her in which she really mourns this loss. And that's in the book as well. And talks about a lifetime of hard work and how she had to give that up, which is all to say that the family support was absolutely there. But it's important to acknowledge that it could go both directions. No, I think that's fascinating and really important because as you mentioned, it's encouraging to see paternal support and extent and all these female networks as well, like you say, daughters and sisters and cousins and so on. It's so fascinating. Obviously, families aren't the only ones who could help and support women artists. I mean, how supportive are male artists of their kind of female counterparts whose actions perhaps caught your attention for their support or patronage of female artists in this period? The short answer is so many. <laughs> and again, it was very surprising because one of the stories we usually hear is Nathaniel Dance, who felt rejected by Angelica Kaufman and put an image in one of his paintings of a nude woman who was purported to be her. And she actually wrote to the Academy demanding that that painting be taken down or else she wouldn't participate in the show. And so what we often hear of these beyond that, there's so much support in the among male artists. And that was one of the most surprising things for me as I delved deeper and deeper into this material. In France, more than 180 women who exhibited in these years studied in more than 100 male artists, Parisian studios. And that included some of the most prominent ones, those of Jacques-Louis David and Jean-Baptiste Regnault and his wife, Sophie. David trained more than 20 women artists, 15 of whom exhibited publicly, 14 of them at the Salon. And Regnault had at least 24 pupils who exhibited. Both of them also seemed to have given their students opportunities to study from the nude. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. One of the things that's most remarkable is that this information is there for France. If you look through exhibition catalogs, these women are explicitly exhibiting as the students of these hundred plus male artists. David was also a huge supporter of his students once they were no longer his students, he helped arrange sales of their works and stayed in touch with many of them, including a woman I discuss a lot named Angelique Monger, who became a large-scale classical history painter. In Britain, we have less evidence of this because exhibition catalogs didn't list teachers in this way. But we do have examples of male artists who were markedly supportive of either their siblings or other women's work. This ranges from John Flaxman and Joseph Farrington, who I already mentioned, to Richard Cosway, whose wife was an exhibiting artist, but who also trained Charlotte Jones, a very, very prominent miniaturist. And we see this throughout the period. But also, we find a lot of support that we might not expect from other figures um, on the patronage side of the art world, including the rulers of the revolutionary world, and so before the revolution in France, Marie Antoinette and Louis are both very helpful to numerous women artists. We have King George and Queen Charlotte in England supporting women's art across this period and a support which is then taken up by other members of the royal family, including the Prince of Wales. Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin also show up, especially when they're in Paris as supporters, again, of women artists. And then we get Napoleon, who 
is largely known for his anti in in the realm of gender history for his Napoleonic code and how horrible it was for women. He's also very known for his hatred of women writers, including Germaine de Stahl. But he doesn't seem to have had this problem with women artists, nor does he seem to have had a problem with their public presence. Because he, his administration, and members of his, of his family purchased works by women exhibited at Salon, commissioned others, and really, and established an award system that allowed women to rise in public prominence through Salon presence. In fact, the first year there was an award this award scheme at the Salon, which was 1804, there was one first prize awarded and it went to that woman I was talking about, David's student, Angelique Manger. Several women won second prizes as well. And the second prize sums they received were the exact same as the second prize sums that men received. And so you see these administrations who are supporting women as well as juries for every show who are being given an annual opportunity to weed out women artists and are choosing not to. I think that's really good to see because I think it counters so much of historical narrative that we often have in terms of male discouragement of women pursuing education or arts or study and they say the fact these judges assessing them on an equal merit the fact that the money is the same I think that's a a very interesting period and a fascinating time to think about how women artists develop how they're treated it's you know I can see why you're drawn to it as a as a, a time to study and we you touched earlier on uh, nude figures and subject choice and types of paintings and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how subject choice affected what women painted and which of their works were chosen to be exhibited you know how and also how does this contrast again between England and what happens in France absolutely and so as I just um, began to allude to the way that women had their works accepted for exhibition was they submitted them to an all-male jury in both nations. And while early on, very few pieces were rejected, as the decades continued, more and more works were rejected for display. And those records don't survive for England, unfortunately, but we know that that was the general trend. And in France, they do survive. And what we see is that women's works are actually rejected in higher proportions than works by men. But the corollary to that, of course, is that women's works are also being admitted in growing numbers, and the juries are thus supporting these women as artists. One of the questions I really enjoyed asking was what subject choices, or what choices were these women making in order to have their works accepted for display? And we don't know what conversations happened. We don't know how these choices were made on either end by the women, by the artists or the jury members. But we know that what women did end up exhibiting were largely portrait and narrative works in both nations and a lot of landscapes as well and England. And so those were the choices that were being positively reinforced. And what's remarkable about that is that those are commercial and intellectual choices. Portraiture was a commercial genre. And so that signals that women were choosing to do this as an economic activity, as a professional activity. And narrative works, the reason I emphasize it so much, them so much is because it's really 
important to see women making that choice when we've largely been told that they didn't. A lot of the portraits and narratives also survive. And so you see them throughout the book. And a large reason that I focus on them is because we can look at them and see what's there. Whereas while women did exhibit numerous landscapes in Britain, very few of those survived, at least as far as I have found, but I hope to continue finding them. In the realm of narrative works, I include a huge range because from a work's title and an exhibition catalog, we can only know so much. We can know if it's a portrait of a man, a portrait of a woman, or just a portrait. We can know that it is a landscape. We can know that it depicted flowers or still life, or we can know that it chose to tell a story. And I have grouped all works that are telling a story under the narrative umbrella, which includes what have traditionally been um, called genre works, which are small scale and not the large scale history works that we generally associate with the genre. But that's because we have no way of distinguishing it. And that's why I chose the narrative label. But it does include large scale history and classical works that, and the ones that have been celebrated at really the peak of the genre and of the hierarchy of genres that was so celebrated and adhered to at the time. And, you know, as I mentioned, we generally think women didn't create these works because they weren't allowed into nude figure drawing classes, but they were actually exhibiting these paintings across the era and they weren't always negatively received. Sometimes exhibition critics were negative, but that wasn't the dominant reaction at all. Several of these women met with praise for their historical and classical scenes, and they sold them for high prices to prestigious buyers. Angelica Kaufman's is one obvious example, and she's gotten so much attention that I try not to focus as much on her to give other people some room. But David's student, Angelique Manger, who I mentioned, is another who's less well known, and several of her massive paintings survive, and I include as many as I can in the book. I think that's interesting, like you say, in terms of obviously there's the range in which what you've included and what survives, what was actually composed in the first place. And again, it's always such a shame when we've lost artwork because it's so important to be able to visualise, you know, what what was there. And I think as we, as you kind of touch on towards the um, the end of the book and you know one of your focus points is how about the professionalization and I'm wondering how did women approach and become professional artists so you've mentioned becoming students of some again very prestigious male artists and so on but there's a difference between what we would now consider professional and what they would have considered professional so I wonder if you can explore that a little bit. First, I want to touch on something you just said about the works that survive. And the thing is, while not far from all works survive, the vast minority survives. And yet, hundreds and hundreds of works that women exhibited survive. And they've barely been studied. They've barely been looked at. They're often in museum storage or private collections. And it's such, it's such a shame because it's a these works are incredible and they tell us so much about what was possible at the time and what was valued at the time. And I just hope that people begin to study them more and unearth other examples along the way. Even the last few years at auction, works that we thought were lost for hundreds of years have come up and shown us so much more about this world than we've been able to see. And of course, a lot of the works that we are able to attribute are, as you say, from women who 
became professional artists, which is a huge part of my argument. And I argue that women largely became professional artists by exhibiting their works. And so when they when one exhibited in the shows I study, they had the choice of listing their name and and or address in the exhibition catalog. And I believe that listing both was an initial step by which an artist announced they hoped to profit commercially from their work because what they were doing was inviting interested buyers to visit their studio and purchase or commission further works or sign up for lessons as students. And while not all of these artists succeeded in becoming professionals, I think that listing their name and address in a catalog signaled professional intent. And often that's all we have for these artists. And actually in both nations, 91% of the women who listed their names in a catalog also listed their addresses. I feel that this is especially vital because there's this huge narrative that when women in these years practiced art, it was as amateurs. And the amateur narrative is very important and has been used to rehabilitate the legacies of a lot of women who were otherwise either not discussed or dismissed. But not all women who practiced art were amateurs, and there were a lot of male amateurs as well. And so one of the goals of my book was to separate out these categories according to the language of the time, which did identify a professional as someone who made money for their work. This has been especially complicated in England by the presence of this honorary category in exhibition catalogs, the Royal Academy and others um, in London in these years. And it's usually been assumed that when women exhibited, it was in this honorary category that was essentially identifying exhibitors as amateurs. But the majority of women exhibitors were not honorary and the category also was populated by hundreds of men in the academies for six decades. In France, on rare occasions, people were identified as amateurs in the exhibition catalog, which had a different connotation. And the rare instances I found only identified men. One of the things that struck me when I was reading through that particular chapter and that focus on professionalization is, and I've forgotten her name now, but one of the female artists who takes on so many projects um, that she can't finish and she's not making nearly enough money from them. And, you know, I mean, I think that sounds like a academic life to a point in the sense that, you know, everyone always wants another project to work on but um also just um you know I think you included a quote which says about the fact that she um I think she can't survive as a professional artist because she doesn't make enough from it oh I think you mean Anne Forbes yes who opens chapter five yeah yes she's an incredible story and I I loved uh, researching her Anne Forbes was a Scottish artist who gained the support of this group of backers of, it seems all male backers who paid for her to go to Rome and study art. And then she moved to London in the 1770s and tried to establish herself as an artist living with her mother and sister. So her letters along with those of her mother and sister all survive in the National Library of Scotland. And what they show is this woman working as hard as she can to be a professional artist and feeling like she's always losing clients to the better known artists like Angelica Kaufman or Reynolds. And it's really interesting because the story that the letters tell 
the letters tell two stories that are at odds with one another. One is that she's working tirelessly. She can't get anything done. She's not making enough money from her art to really make up what she's spending on art supplies. And she eventually decides to leave London and go back to Edinburgh where she continues a career as an artist, but just not in the big city. You can also see in the letters how much work she did have. There's a reason she was tired. She's doing tons of portraits. She's exhibiting paintings that are getting a lot of recognition. Up and coming printmakers are choosing her works to replicate. And what's also remarkable is that that is taken for granted. There's nothing about her gender that is mentioned in any of this. It's just her own personal energy and the speed at which she works. And so I'm really glad you brought up that example. It's, there's so much more in those letters too about how she approached her artistic process, what parts she painted when, when she used a model with fabrics versus painting from people, um, sitters, live sitters in her studio. And each of these figures has so much more that could be explored, her, her as much as anyone else. And actually a painting of hers that I think she exhibited was just acquired by the National Gallery of Victoria in Australia. And it's remarkably beautiful. Well, there we go. I think we've got a starting point for biographies of women artists. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope. <laughs> and, you know, again, you said there's so many artists you include and so many works that are included in the book. And you have a really kind of like thorough comparative study but what would be a kind of like one idea if you could only pick one that you'd like someone to have from your book? I often joke that the main point of the book is that women artists existed throughout this period and they mattered a lot too <laughs> <laughs> and I think that is the takeaway it's just that we can't discount this entire population in the realm of the arts and that they weren't just present, but they were influential. They were professional artists. They were minority, but a consistent one. They started some trends and they influenced others. And it's largely due to subsequent historical writings that their stories were essentially written out. And that's part of why I wanted to include so many illustrations especially of such high quality. And the Paul Mellon Center and Yale did an incredible job. And I worked with a wonderful copy editor who also did the interior design, Julia Malpass, because I wanted the art to also make a case for itself without any written additions from me. And I really hope that it does because it's the very fact of their existence and the fact that it was a powerful existence that I want readers to take away. Well, I mean, I for one am definitely convinced. Like, it's, <laughs> it, it is, it's, I know I said this at the beginning as well, but it's such a beautiful book, such an excellent collection of images, in which obviously carry across uh, your research and your argument and the passion that's in it. And, you know, I mean, it feels, getting ahead of ourselves to talk about more stuff when we've just finished this and it's just coming out but you know has this kind of set the foundations for a future project you know like where are you looking to move next in terms of uh, research and scope and ideas 
Yeah, my next project is a much larger scale art history that incorporates women throughout time and shows that they really have been valued and achieved very high status along the way. And it's more of a retrospective erasure that has led them to be so absent from our present narratives. Well, that also sounds like something we very much need. So I will <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> keep my fingers crossed and wish you all the luck with it because, you know, I, as people who have listened to other podcasts, know I'm such a fan of comparative studies and works because I think they really highlight so much. Uh, so I will look forward to uh, seeing how that project develops as it comes along. So thank you. Thank you so much. So again, thank you for joining me today, Paris. And for our listeners, we will put links to the book and Paris's Twitter information with the podcast release. So thanks very much.